I'm thankful each of you are here. I'm thankful for what the Lord is doing in these days. Uh, the people that we are coming into contact with, the people we have been able to reach, I'm thankful for the goodness of God. Second Thessalonians 3 this morning, let's pray, and we're going to get into the Word of God today. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be here this morning. I thank you, God, for each person, each family that's here. Uh, God, you know what we stand in need of today, and God, I pray that you use our Word, Lord, to bring conviction, to bring encouragement, uh, God, to bring comfort, uh, Lord, to help us leave here with something today. Uh, that we can grow in our faith and, and better serve you. Uh, God, watch over us. We do pray for those that are sick, God, that stand in need of healing. We pray that they would be well very, very soon. Uh, God, there are many grieving and hurting in these days. And God, we just uh, we lift those to you as well. Father, we love you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You realize that some people believe that the Bible is, is nothing more than a collection of old stories like Jonah and the whale and Noah and the ark. Um, some view it that way, but those of us that love the Word of God understand and know that it's so much more. If you love the Bible, you realize that the Bible is a very practical guide for living, for living out our lives and honoring the Lord. In fact, everything we need to know about how to live is found in the pages of the Bible. That's one reason why I drive and I encourage people to be in the Word of God, to read the Bible. As Paul so often does in our study of 2 Thessalonians, he moves from doctrinal theological to very practical in this last section and talks about a basic practice of Christian living. Our passage today speaks about the importance of work, the importance of work. I believe that most of us today probably have a job or have had a job or will have a job down the road. And today Paul gives very practical advice in this text concerning work. At some time or another, everybody in this room, the young people that are coming up, are going to have to the, the experience of applying for a job. But I want to encourage everybody to be careful what you put on your application because you only have one chance to make a first impression. Uh, to motivate us this morning, here are some actual statements from job applications. I served as an assistant SOAR manager. Actual statement on an application. Education, I went to school on a full F-O-O-L scholarship. How about this one? Actually put on an application, I am very detail D-E-T-A-L-E, -E, oriented. Number four, actually on an application, I am a rabid typist. <laughs> Here's another one. On a federal government job application, there was a question. Do you favor the overthrow of the United States government by force, subversion, or violence? Apparently, the person applying for this job thought it was multiple choice, and they chose violence. <laughs> Be very careful what you put on your application. Proofread that bad boy. Have somebody proofread it for you. In Paul's day, as well as ours, people, would you agree, have a wrong view of work. They have a wrong view of work. 
Think about how work is portrayed in our culture. We remember the song from a Disney movie, I owe, I owe, off to work we go. Work is nothing more than a necessary evil to pay off debts and fund one's lifestyle. Someone made this statement. They said, work fascinates me. I can sit down and watch it for hours. How about what we see on license plates in our country, in our culture? They announced that people would rather be fishing, flying, camping, golfing, skiing, sailing, four-wheeling, anything but working. John MacArthur said, in our materialistic, self-indulgent society, many people play at their work and work at their play. Many only work to achieve prosperity, success, and fortune, and fame, early retirement. Now, everything I'm saying is sufficient to say that we have an ungodly view of work, maybe just not in our culture, but even within the church. These perspectives rob us of the value of work. And these two letters that we've examined over many weeks now, the Apostle Paul has shown these Christians how they can have faith in troubled times, how they can stand firm when the world's falling apart because our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ and He is coming again. However, some misused uh, the point, or missed the point rather entirely and misrepresented what Paul said. They embraced this mentality that if Jesus is coming, then all I have to do is wait. There's no need to do anything because Jesus is coming again. So the second coming became their excuse for not working. Paul offers some strong language and confronts these unruly individuals. I will warn you before we read this text, this is a strong passage. And we're going to see the man of God use some very tough language. Notice 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from a brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I love the way that the New American Standard translates this that uses the word unruly. 
The Greek word Paul uses is ataktos, and in some translations translated idleness. And your, your translation may say idleness. Uh, but this translation of idleness of this word misses the, the broader meaning of what Paul here is saying. And this morning, I want us to notice three life-changing lessons as we look at this address, as Paul confronts the conduct of those in this church, these unruly individuals. I want us to notice three life-changing lessons for you and me today. Uh, young people, look, pay attention. These are life-changing things here in the Word of God this morning that will help you in your life moving forward. I want you to notice, number one, he teaches us to have the right perspective in our work. The right perspective in our work, and what perspective is that? Listen to me, and this might shock some, but work is a gift from God. Work is a gift from God. Work is not a bad four-letter word. It is a gift from God. If we are careful, we miss the main concern if we're not careful what the Apostle Paul is saying in this passage. Certainly, laziness is addressed. Certainly, he, he, he calls out laziness, but in verse 11, we see this phrase, leading an undisciplined life, acting like busybodies. And so the picture that Paul paints for you and me is not of people who is sitting by doing nothing, but they are working at the wrong things. They're working at the wrong things. They're not doing what they should be doing. And leading their lives in this way is at odds with how they are supposed to be leading their lives to be pleasing and honoring to the Lord. They had a wrong perspective. Paul's main concern was that they were out of line. These Christians were out of line. They had messed up their view of work. They, they had this, this flawed idea of work. And to see the importance of this, we need to look at the issue in light of creation. We need to go back to Genesis and take a look at what Paul is saying here because it's obvious that Paul is trying to teach them a proper theology of work, help them understand that work is a gift from God. It's not a result of the fall. Somebody say amen. Work is not a result of the fall. We do not work because of sin. Work is a part of God's good creation. It's obvious Paul's words to these Christians are rooted in his knowledge of the Old Testament. Notice verse 10. We see what he says. If anyone is not willing to work, then he will not eat either. I want you to notice Paul's reasoning. Where does he make a statement like this from? Go with me quickly to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, now I want you to notice verse 27. God created man. Genesis 1, 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which, is, which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. You realize that this is taking, this text we just read is before the fall. 
We see in Genesis 1, Adam is instructed by God to work for his food. Sin is not the reason that we work. A correct view of work is rooted in a correct view of creation. When we are called to work because that is the way that God created the world for us to work. But however, as a result of sin, would you agree that work became more difficult? Work became more challenging. Look over at Genesis 3 and verse 17. Genesis 3 and verse 17, notice what it says. Then Adam said this, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from from the tree which I have commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And toil will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So because of sin we now face pain and sweat and toil and frustration. Along with our work. But we still notice that our work still. Adam's work still produced food to eat. Now back in 2 Thessalonians. When we look at verse 8, we notice Paul said this. He said, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. In this, we see Paul's example for the command he gave them in verse 10. Where did Paul get that command in Genesis 3? By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. We just read that a moment ago. We will benefit through our work, by being able to eat. Paul's reasoning here in 2 Thessalonians 3, no doubt is rooted in the language of Genesis 3. That is his reasoning for challenging these Christians in their work. We see his reasoning, but we also see Paul's reality. There's another reason that Genesis 3 is the background to everything that Paul is saying. Paul didn't just command about working from there, but this was his reality. This is the way that Paul lived his life. Paul's whole perspective on his life and his work were rooted in the Word of God. Would you agree that ours should be as well? Think about it this way. When God created the world, everything was good. Everything was good. Everything was in the right place. There was perfect order to God's creation. Nothing was out of place. There was peace ruled by God's instruction. Adam uh, could have followed, should have followed God's commands. Everything was supposed to be uh, to result in peace and harmony, which didn't just mean the absence of conflict, but complete well-being because everything was ordered rightly. That was God's design. But when sin entered the picture, Adam not only broke God's command, but he brought disorder to the entire world. And this disorder disrupted the peace that was a part of the original creation. So sin, the breaking of God's commands brought disorder and disrupted peace. It brought unruly and disorderly behavior to humanity. This behavior was out of line. The language Paul uses in 2 Thessalonians 3, it was out of line with God's intention. So God was at work in Genesis 3 to repair the ruins, to bring order, to bring rule and peace. How many are thankful for Jesus this morning? The plan of God to bring peace again. In this, we clearly see how Paul is using the story of creation, the narrative of creation as the foundation for his instruction to these believers. 
See, one of Paul's main points here in our passage is that God is repairing the ruins, listen church, through us, through the church now. He's repairing the ruins through His people. That is why it's important to understand the word unruly. And our text is not just laziness or idleness. There was much more at stake than simply not doing things. These believers were living were living out of line with God. They were disrupting the work of God in making things right and repairing the ruins. Genesis 3 teaches us God's order. Work the ground, receive bread. Church, we are called, listen to me, to live in a way that others see the way it's supposed to be. You realize that you and I are to reflect the glory of God to the world. This was Paul's greatest challenge with these believers. Look, despite the pain and struggle on everything you're facing in life, we are expected to reflect the glory of God, the peace of God. These Christians were not living in line with God's word. Instead, they were living outside of God's order. That was Paul's concern. It was not simply that they weren't working. They had disrupted the way things were supposed to function, the, things, the way were, things were supposed to be. And so Paul, as any of man of God should, told them to get back in line with God's order, to get back in line with God's plan, because they were supposed to demonstrate the way reality is supposed to be. We see that we should have a right perspective of work. That is, work is a gift from God. Can y'all, y'all say that with me? It may be really hard for some of us, but y'all say this with me, okay? On the count of three, we're going to say work is a gift from God. One, two, three. Work is a gift from God. Let's learn to live with that perspective of work. But I want you to notice, number two, not only the right perspective, but Paul teaches them the right priority in their work. He teaches them the right priority. Now listen to this. Now I want you to write this down if you write notes. Work is, your work is missional. Work is missional. That is the right priority. The right perspective is that Work is a gift from God. The right priority is that work is missional. I want you to notice verse 8. It says this, Nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we should not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing uh, to work, then he should not eat either. When you look back at verse 6, we see a phrase here that we need to expound upon, not according to the tradition. Paul had instructed these Christians about heaven and redemption and salvation and the second coming. We know this. We've looked at these two letters. Paul taught them to have a doctrinal and spiritual outlook on life so that that would have included work and vocation, what he's come to dealing with in this passage. He gave them very practical instructions on how they should live their lives as believers in the world. How their work reflected, how their lives should reflect the glory of God. How, look, when Paul is telling them how, like, when you do your work to the best of your ability, that you are being salt and light in the culture. This is the significance of seeing our vocation properly, to having the right priority, the right perspective, and that is work is missional. Hey, look, church, listen to me. Everybody listen to me right here. All Christians, all Christians, what did I just say? All Amen, you're with me. All Christians are missionaries. 
All Christians are missionaries. You see, some are called to go overseas. Some missionaries are called to go overseas. We just had one of those in. Some missionaries are called to the classroom to teach in our schools. Some missionaries are called to the police department. Some missionaries are called to the fire department, to the hospital. Some missionaries are called to be engineers, to work in factories. You see, my point, we are all missionaries. The work of a Christian is missional, and it's at its heart. I remember the story of a police officer. This was in Virginia, and God just really began moving in this church. You want to know how God began moving in this church? The people got a hold of the power of prayer. These people began praying. You know how prayer meetings are most of the time the least attended thing at a church? Well, at this church, it, it, it turned out differently. They began having prayer meetings. It started out a little bit. More and more started coming. God started getting a hold of people's lives. The fire of God falls on this place, and, and people, look, and when God shows up, when the presence of God is there, when we are living for and exalting the name of Jesus, everybody gets a hold of this idea that work is missional. So a police officer in that church got his life right with God. He became on fire for God. He became to be salt and light. He became to see his vocation as missional. So the very people that this officer would have to arrest during the week were the same people that he began leading to Jesus and discipling them. And when they would get out, would come to his church. He got on fire for God and God began using him. You see, we're all called to be missionaries. Christians are missionaries. Can I say, let me say this, and I don't want to be unkind. Let me say this. You know why so many of you are struggling so significantly with your attitude, your perspective, and the things of God in your life? Because your eyes are focused on what everyone else is not doing and what you and your family should be doing. That's why so many in this room struggle. Because it's so much easier to point out what everyone else is not doing than to sit back Spend some time with the Lord and ask, what should me and my family be doing? Again, you've heard me say before, it takes no talent or ability to point out where something is wrong. Where, where courage and determination is seen is when I, when I decide I'm going to do something. I'm going to be all in serving God with everything I got. I'm going to understand that my work is missional every area of my life. Paul didn't just instruct them in this truth. Now watch, he lived this truth for them. They saw the example of Paul in this truth. Isn't it frustrating for someone to teach something that they don't seek to model themselves? You know, I mean, isn't that true? I mean, we don't like for somebody to tell us to do something and then they're not seeking to do it themselves. That was not the Apostle Paul. He modeled what he taught these believers. We saw that in verses 8 and 9. Look, we did these things. I'm a model for you. I paid for my own bread. Look, he didn't work because he had to. As a teacher, he could have been supported by the church, but Paul chose to live in such a way to be an example to the young believers in this church about the importance of hard work so they could imitate him. This example was in opposition because the traveling preachers of that time, the traveling preachers who would go around to different places, they represented the philosophical traditions of the culture and they neglected manual labor. They spoke poorly of manual labor and Paul stood In opposition to that, we see the command he gives in verse 10. If you don't work, you don't eat. It's pretty straightforward. This is a challenge to work for a living. 
In the early church, this, this was used to provide instruction for ministers concerning how they should help those in need, as well as dealing with the unruly who should not receive help from the church. You do realize there are those that should not receive help from the church. What was Paul's concern? Paul is challenging these, these Christians to be on guard against living off of other people. If you don't work, you don't eat. At the heart of this command is the idea that work is the notion of providing for yourselves so that you can be generous to other people. So that you can be generous. We are not to live with this privileged mentality that since I am a Christian, I have a right to be taken care of by others. That attitude Paul is rebuking, and he is conveying the opposite. We should not live with the attitude that the federal government is responsible to take care of me. Certainly the government can play an important role in helping its citizens and those that are in need, of course. But Christians are not to live in such a way as to depend upon the federal government. You realize that? Our dependence is on the Lord. It's also important to consider this. And Look, my, my, my goal today is not to make anybody mad. <laughs> my goal is not. But we have to address this issue of retirement. In a lot of ways, this has become the American dream for many. Church, listen, there's nowhere, no passage you can point to in the Bible that teaches retirement in the way that we know it in America. Working for 40, 50 years until you have enough to retire and play, that's not scriptural. This doesn't mean that you have to stay in the same job, but if you retire, you serve God with your time, maybe in a way that you could not do in the earlier parts of your life. We have no examples of heroes of the faith that retired and just propped their feet up and waited for Jesus to return. Paul's rebuking that in this text. Look, we're not to stop working on this side of heaven. Look, every Christian who follows Christ is called to name the name of Jesus and to serve Him and to love and serve their neighbor until the day that they die. This is what we're called to do. We see the command he gives, but we see also his concern. Look at verse 11. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Do not grow weary of doing good. The word busybodies in our text simply means meddling. There are believers in the Thessalonian church who were not working. And that created disorder in the life of the church because they were meddling in the affairs of other people. How many believe that still goes on in our society today? How does one become a busybody? How does one become a meddler? By not doing what God's called you to do. Notice verse 12, Paul tells them to do this. Now such persons, we command and exhort you in the Lord, Jesus Christ, to work in quiet fashion and eat your own bread. Eat your own bread. What is Paul saying? He's telling them, mind your own business. (laughs) Mind your business and work as God has called you to. Mind your business and work as God has called you to. See, busybodies are those that serve themselves. This type of conduct disrupts the order and peace within the assembly, within the congregation. Paul calls Christians to eat their own bread and work in a quiet fashion. 
Why does he tell them to do that? Because this is a life, this is a life that is in line with God's intentions and is not self-centered, but seeking to serve someone else. We also see Paul gives us the corrective action. Not only does he command them and express his concern, but he gives them the corrective action. Look at verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, just, just think with me about how unpopular, this is not a verse. Verse 14 is not a verse you're going to see somebody share on social media. It's not. Because we don't like verses like this. In fact, we, we, we well, that just, I don't know, that sounds hateful. That's, that verse is highly offensive to our culture today. But it was inspired of the Holy Spirit of God, and Paul wrote it. So therefore, we should obey it. We should heed it. No doubt this command, this, this corrective action he gives, Paul mentions in, in verse 14, applies to other uh, instruction he has given, other things he has admonished them not to do. But we apply it to this particular passage concerning work. You see, often our response when someone is unruly is to ignore unruly behavior. We ignore it like, well, it's just going to go away. We just, we just hope it goes away. And here's what happens. We, we often use the excuse, well, I'm, I'm non-confrontational. Hey, can I stop here and just say something bluntly and directly that's just true? I'm non-confrontational. No, here's the deal. You're a coward. You're a coward. You're more concerned about offending somebody and somebody not liking you than speaking the truth that could change somebody's life. We are more concerned about being friendly and being liked than we are speaking the truth. And sometimes the truth being spoken is a hard thing to do. We must lose this excuse that I'm non-confrontational. Paul tells us, look, he, says, he tells us very specific things. He says, take note of that person. Mark the person that is unruly. Paul tells us, look, do not associate with them. You're not to be uh, all chummy-chummy, friendly-friendly with somebody who's being unruly. Somebody who's disrupting the order of God's church. Now listen, he's talking to the church. He is talking to Christians. He's not talking about lost people. People often like to group, group Christians with lost people. No, that's not what he's doing. He's saying a brother or sister in Christ who is unruly, do not associate with them. Not a lost person. And then he says, admonish them. Don't view them as an enemy, but you admonish them as a brother. Now, it's very important for me to point this out. Because what's going to happen after a sermon like this is that there's going to be a lot of confrontations made. <laughs> now, now, let me point this out. Galatians 6 says, if a brother is overtaken in a fault, it says, you which are spiritual are to go to him and to seek to restore him. It says, you which are spiritual. You which are spiritual. Y'all say it with me. You which are spiritual are to go to him. So here's my point. If you're a, a, a Christian in name only, or all you do is attend church, and you come each week, but you're not in the Word of God each day, you don't have a regular time in your Bible and in prayer, you're not walking or leading your family to love God, you're not walking with the Lord each day, then listen to me, please listen to me. You have no business confronting a brother in Christ who is unruly. Because therefore, you are not spiritual. And all you are going to do is more harm than good. But as you walk with the Lord, as you seek to honor God in your life, 
as you pray over things that burden your heart and mind, as, as God so leads you as you walk with him, yes, admonish the unruly. You may save their life. You may save them. Paul says, look, to take note of them. He says, do not associate with them. He says, to admonish them as a brother. Paul is giving an example of, of church. Again, here's another word we don't like in the culture, but church discipline. He's giving an example of church discipline. Discipline is a part of the life and ministry of the church. It's often neglected in our culture today. It's often one of the marks of the church, but listen to me, of the churches in years gone by. The traditional churches that have gone by, the Protestant churches, they practiced these things that Paul teaches. What the Bible teaches about church discipline is outlined in our church constitution and bylaws for any prospective member to read. We always give that before someone joins the church. It's God's idea. It's not man's. This is not church discipline. It's not something that man sat down and just come up with because they wanted to be hateful to people. <laughs> That's not what happened. It's outlined here in 2 Thessalonians 3 how we are to respond to an unruly individual, one who seeks to be a busybody rather than work for the glory of God. The Bible is clear that leaders are to watch over the souls of their people, and you understand. Listen to me very carefully. As your pastor, you do realize and understand I will stand before God one day and give an account of how I oversee the ministry and the people of our church. And I take that very, very seriously. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. John Dagg said when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. And I echo their statements. See, we're to have the right perspective of work, the right priority in work. And notice number three, and lastly, we're to have the right pursuit in our work. And that pursuit is God's peace. God's peace. Look at verse 16 through 18. We're going to finish this up this morning. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. That is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Look, if we're real about what we have read today and what we have gone over today, this is a difficult section of Scripture. Maybe a section we tend to avoid. We know that our work and vocation is hard because of the sin curse. And when it's not functioning properly, which is often disorder, comes into the life of the church, the life of God's people. If those who are unruly do not follow Paul's command and the instruction of the leaders in the church, you face the difficult task, as he's just outlined, of marking them, not associating with them, and admonishing them, hoping to bring them back to the proper path. But Paul gives hope as he closes out this letter, this section. In verse 16, he says, Now may the Lord of peace, aren't you thankful we serve the Lord of peace? And he prays that God would grant them peace in every circumstance. Look, if we follow what Paul has taught about this practical area of our lives, working for the glory of God, having the right perspective, the right priority, the right pursuit in our work, if we fulfill our calling and vocations as God has planned for our lives, if we deal with disorderly, uh, the unruly, those out of line, we address those things, we encourage them, 
in their life of faith. We encourage one another, then we understand. Paul says, look, the Lord will reestablish peace. This is how peace and harmony is maintained within the church. But sadly, through the years, so many churches have dealt with disorderly conduct in, in, in varying ways. Some have ignored it. Some have, 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 have just swept it under the rug. And churches have sadly, many churches have had to close their doors as to the demise of the church when we simply do not do things God's way. Paul explains that by addressing problems, no matter how hard they may be at the moment, we are on the road to reestablishing peace in the community. Hey, church, listen to me. Would you agree, as Christians, we're to honor God first. We're going to honor Him. If I'm going to err on any side, it's going to be His side. If I'm going to be extra cautious, it's going to be on His side. It doesn't matter if it's family, friends, whoever it may be. I'm going to be on his side. I'm going to stand with the Lord. This closing section that Paul leaves us with, he communicates hope. We face difficult decisions as a church that involve those we love, the path to restoration. It can be very, very challenging, very difficult. But Paul reminds us with these concluding words that we cannot lose sight of our goal. Our redemption, listen, is not simply your being redeemed by the blood of Christ, is not simply your ticket for eternal bliss. Amen. It's not simply just a ticket for eternal bliss for you and I. Our redemption is for the whole world. Because as Christians, we are supposed to give the world a glimpse of the way things should be as for those that follow Christ. We are supposed to be an example of the way things ought to be. Paul finishes by reminding that us, reminding us that the Lord will provide peace through these difficult trials. And he will reestablish peace. And we know one day we live life God's way. We reflect his glory to the world. In our work, we magnify Jesus. We serve him till he comes. We know that one day we will experience peace for all eternity. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. (laughs) All eternity. Look, church, let's live for the glory of God. I invite you to stand to your feet as we pray this morning. Father, I thank you for the instruction of your word today. I thank you for these truths that we have learned from the Apostle Paul as he was led of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray we will heed them. God, as a church, we will live by them. Lord, that we will stand up for one another, that we will guard one another. Lord, that we will confront our brother or sister, Lord, in love, who is unruly, who may be a busybody as Paul described in our text, so that there would be peace and harmony within the church. God, we exist for your glory and your glory alone. So God, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. God, we love you today. We thank you for the truth that we have heard this morning. With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, if you are here today and you do not know that you're a Christian, You do not know that heaven is your eternal home. The Bible tells us we can know that heaven is our eternal home. I invite you right now where you stand. Would you repent of your sin? Would you believe the gospel that Jesus died for you? That he rose again on the third day so that you could walk in newness of life. Would you commit right now? 
through repentance and faith to follow Christ with your life. How does someone know they're going to heaven? Very clearly, Jesus said, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Follow me. Today, would you choose to follow me? I invite you to do that. Please do it before it's eternally too late. To the church this morning, Christians this morning, could you today, would you today, would you get around this altar and pray? Would you pray for our church? Would you pray for the harmony within our church? Would you pray for your family? Would you seek God today for your home, your life, your family? Would you seek to be that one that works for the glory of God? To help maintain the harmony, the mission of the church. Maybe you need to confess your poor attitude toward your work each day. Your complaining and your criticism of your work. And maybe God today has worked in your heart to see that my work is missional. My work is a gift from the Lord. Maybe today you need to spend some time talking to the Lord about those things. The altar is open this morning. I invite Christians to come. I invite you to come. Spend some time with the Lord in prayer today. You can spend time with the Lord there where you stand, but maybe, maybe today, through what we've heard, the work God's doing in our heart, maybe it would be appropriate for you to come and kneel before Him. To humble yourself and continue to let God work in your heart and life and be that person God can use for His glory. I invite you to come today and kneel before the Lord. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, for your word. Speak to our hearts. I pray for those today, God, that may not know Jesus is Lord. And God, I pray you would continue working them. Lord, draw them to yourself. Lord, I pray they would repent and believe before it's eternally too late. God, we love you. Thank you for speaking to us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Some are coming this morning. I invite you to come. God, dealing with your heart. Come and kneel before the Lord this morning. Jesus, I surrender all. Give
Today, gathered as your church. Thank you for your words speaking in our hearts today. Lord, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I want to share just a couple of announcements before we leave this morning.